Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don and um, in common with many of our past month's interviews, we have a fantastic guest for you this morning and uh, it seems like I can't keep off the topic of weather, climate, you name it, net zero, we're just on that all the time because it is so deeply entrenched in the New Zealand psyche, we've got to talk about it as much as we can. So it is our, our pleasure today to have um, Dr. John Maunder on our show. I would suggest he is probably the father, if not the godfather of New Zealand weather. And so welcome, John. We're looking forward to spending some time with you um, right from the beginning, really. I mean, I don't think it's any any uh, news to people who have read about you You're in your 10th decade of life. Oh, and, and that's fantastic. So you were born at the beginning of the Depression or during the Depression and um, lived through a world war. Just tell us about those formative years, and then we'll build into your uh, your academic career. Okay. Well, I was born in born in Nelson in 1932, 3rd of August 1932, and I lived there for about six years. Um, and uh, I was always remember the, uh, um, the that period of time. I was very fond of cats, so, so I used to bring all the cats home to my to, to my mother and father. Anyway, I went to um, primary school in Nelson. Uh, for about two years, and then my father, who was a manager, he was a man, he was working with the Bank of New Zealand. Um, he got a job um, as manager of the Tahika branch of Gold in Golden Bay. So I went over there when I was seven years old, and we, as in, as the usual thing in those days, if you lived in the, lived if you were you know with the um, family of the bank manager, um, you basically. Uh, uh, you you, uh, you lived upstairs in the bank building, bank building. Around, around New Zealand, there's a lot of these bank buildings, two-story bank buildings. And I lived there. And on the on the top floor, I could see over a, a vacant piece of land between us and the post office and beyond that to the Tahika River. Now, as a seven-year-old, I was not interested. I, I had no particular interest in the weather. But um, being there, of course, I saw the flood, the floods come across the rivers. Uh, from from the Tahika River to the uh, Commercial Street in uh, Tahika, and uh, I noticed that every now and again that used to flood, and I asked two questions, uh, or my mother and father two questions, or my or my uh, um, school teachers, why did it rain? And then I was particularly interested in not so much why it rained, but the consequences of the rain, and of course the consequence of the rain was the flood, the floods that came over the Commercial Street in Tahika. And one of my jobs that I had paid jobs was basically delivering the Nelson Evening Mail uh, along with another guy. Uh, he, he drove the car and I, I, I threw out the papers. And, uh, of course, if you had floods, you realise that uh, uh, the, the, the flooding had a quite a, a strong economic and social importance to the town. And so um, I then went, uh, uh, had to go to Nelson every now and again to go and see the dentist. And uh, I went to the a visit to the Cawthorn Institute in Nelson, and uh, I thought it was the most boring place that I'd ever been to. I'm not not particularly interested in in the the bugs and all that type of thing. So right at the end of this thing, I was, I was seven years old at that time. I said, 
said to the guy, I said, well, what about the weather? Where's the weather? And so he gave me a, a tour of where the, where the weather instruments were and things like that. And um, the, the, the rest is history probably because I then went to, uh, uh, went, my father then moved to Motueka. I went to Nelson College, spent a couple of years, four years there, and then on to University of Otago where I, I was wanting, wanting to be a meteorologist. And I was told uh, by the people in, in Kelvin and Wellington that to be a meteorologist, I had to do uh, basically a degree in maths and physics. Well, I wasn't too, I was, I was okay for that, but I wasn't, I was partic more particularly interested in the geography of the, of the physics and the thing like that rather than the science. And um, so basically I, I did my degree, uh, actually finishing up at the University of Canterbury uh, and uh, managed to get stage three, three mathematics, not quite sure how, but managed to get it. And then I joined the Met Service in 1957, I think it was, 57. And uh, no, 55. And uh, and so um, I then sent, and then uh, from then on, of course, um, uh, my career has been basically in, in the meteorological climate system. And um, I was there at the, at the um, uh, I was there for about two years. And then I had this um, offer of a job at the university, at the, the Meteorological Society Service of Canada. And so I spent some little time there. And uh, after the course, I did a bit of a course there because uh, they wanted to give me some training in Northern Hemisphere meteorology. Uh, and there was a course, there were about 13 people on that course. And at the end of the okay, the, the guy said to me, he said, uh, what did you think of the course? And I said, well, it was all right. But I thought that the bit that they gave us on, on teaching and, uh, you know, um, that things like that kind of thing was a bit of a, irrelevant. So they said, uh, well, where would you like to go in Canada? So I said, oh, somewhere I could see the Rockies. So they gave me this job. I, I presume they worked on the basis that, that uh, I didn't need any training in, in uh, speaking or things like that and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and so uh, they gave me a job at the, in, in Clairesholm, which is a little town south of Calgary. Uh, it had been used and, and is still used to a certain extent as a training ground for uh, for Air Force, Air Force uh, uh, people in the Second World War. And I met several people who were trained in Claire's home. Anyway, the, um, I spent a little bit of time then and then I decided to come back to New Zealand and um, joined the Met Service again. And uh, then uh, from then on, it's... Uh, I, uh, uh, was the, the Met Service for a little while, and then this job came up at the University of Otago um, as a lecturer in geography. So in 1961, I left the Met Service and uh, um, went across to the University of Otago and um, um, did uh, courses there, well, you know, ran courses there for about six years, during which time I, I did my PhD, as, as you could do in those days. I'm quite sure you can still do it now. But... Uh, so as a as an academic full time academic, um, they 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 said, well, you, you're going to have to take four years to do the PhD rather than two years if you're a full time. So I produced the um, the thesis, and the thesis was the. And this is where my economic side of things, although I'm not an economist, and uh, it was the effect of of climatic variations on on agricultural Central incomes. Incomes. So I was particularly interested in 
not so much. I was not never never particularly interested in um, why an apple grows, but how many apples grow. So and how many and how much you know from a dairy point of view. Not not never particularly interested in the the, the milk production. Uh, well, why it's like that and all that type of thing. But I was interested in how much milk is produced. So that was where the agricultural incomes come. So and I remember. So, uh, so John, I, could you just could I just interrupt there and ask: Was that paper well received, and was that well used over time? Because as farmers, we're interested to know that people like you do get your information out, and people do do use it uh, for good effect. Uh, was it was it taken up well? Oh yes, I, I think so because the uh, uh, it was um, it, particularly the the, the, the sort of the climate world, uh, they realised that there was something in this kind of thing. It was it wasn't just uh, uh, sort of the science of it all. It was all it was basically I mean basically how much how many bushels per acre basically the simplest thing like that. And um, so that's what happened. And then what happened then was um, um, I did my PhD, and at that stage in 1966. Uh, quite a lot of opportunities around the world for people like myself. And I applied for this job at the University of Victoria. That's the real University of Victoria, not the one down in Wellington, uh, the, the <laughs> University of Victoria in in, uh, in Canada, on, on, on British Columbia there. And so I spent a very happy three years there, uh, teaching students and things like that. And then uh, one particular day, I think it was 1960 or 68, um, a guy came in from Matthew and Company, the, the publishers, the British publishers, and as they did in those days, they used just to simply said, um, these are the new books. So, uh, he, he would go around the whole university, new books in Economics 101 and Theology 101 and, and then Meteorology 101 or the equivalent. And I said to him, I said, oh, when are you people going to produce a decent textbook? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, something that's got something to do with the value of the weather. Um, and um, he said, "Well, why don't you write it? Because uh, there hadn't been there hadn't been any books like that, certainly in the English language." I'd had a friend of mine, Jim McQuig, who was uh, about ten years older than I am. He did a PhD on the the, the value of weather weather information, which is uh, and I sort of got the idea from there. And so, um, so after so he said, "Well, why don't you write ten pages in the middle of the book?" So, okay, so I wrote 10 pages in the middle of the book. And because uh, I had a captive audience of students, graduate students at the University of Victoria in Canada, um, I gave it to them with a, with a red pen and said, please go through this and, and uh, make, a, make any comments you may, may like to have on this, which they did. And uh, I then did, did a few more corrections to the thing, sent it to Matthew and Company in Toronto, and uh, within about two weeks, I got a note back saying, yeah, we, you've got a contract. And uh, then at that stage, uh, they then said, however, we want to send it on to London, which is the headquarters of Matthew and Company, and to see whether they could, would be interested in publishing it in, in the British publishing something as well as well as the Northern American one, which they did, and so I got a contract there. At that stage, I then had to uh, sort around and find out what happens when you write a book and things like that? There's a lot of things about royalties and all that type of thing. So I, 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 uh, I asked around, and there, there were very few people that actually at the University of Victoria uh, in those days had written a book. I mean, rather surprisingly, I thought 
most people had. Uh, but uh, it turns out that not many had, but they were very helpful in terms of the, the legalities of it and things like that. One had to be careful here that, for example, with my royalty statement, um, the, the, the question is what would happen if, the, if, the, if, my, if my book uh, was made into a film? Who gets the royalties? And it, it never was never made into a film, but it was was translated in, into Spanish. So there were certain things about the, that kind of thing, and so that was interesting. How now that uh, that opened up the world world for me to because people realised that I existed and not just a little guy from New Zealand, and um, and so um, the so the, the book came out, the value of the weather, and it turned out to be a, a, a pretty good seller. Well, particularly these days. Because today, if you if you write a book, if you buy, if you can produce a hundred copies or a thousand copies, you're doing pretty well. Uh, well, this one produced ten thousand copies, so I so I, uh, you don't make too much money despite all that. Uh, so I managed to get enough money to, to buy a, a mini car. That was in 1970. So um, and then I opened up a few other things. And so what happened uh, a few, a few or a couple of years later? Out of the blue, I got this this um, letter from a friend of mine, a former student of mine, uh, Susan Cave uh, from Otago University, and she was working in Geneva. And um, somebody got onto her and said, "Do you know where John Maunder is these days?" And things like that. You know, this is before internet. And uh, so, in the end result was that um, I got this invitation, or was was asked whether I'd be interested in applying for a job at the World Meteorological Organization (WMO). In Geneva, which I did, and um, so this job was the uh, to be the uh, chief chief of the agricultural meteorology part of the uh, World Meteorological Organization. So I applied for the job and got the job, and spent two years there. Um, so that that sort of opened up the world to me on that type of thing. I then went back to New Zealand, but uh, and spent two years in Geneva, and then spent another um, probably uh, about six years, eight years at the, the meteorological service again. Uh, they welcomed me back again. And uh, and so, uh, and that, that carried on until 1962, I think, 19, no, 19, what, 1982, um, 82, and um, I got a job at the, uh, the University of Delaware, um, where, when, when at that time, uh, there was the uh, University, of, uh, University of Delaware, and um, I met uh, Joe Biden, the, the current president of the United States. Well, he wasn't. He was the, the he was the a uh, um, senator from De Delaware at the time. It, unfortunately, unfortunately, I found out that it was, had, had, he had a um, an unusual background and the fact that the well, sad background to a certain extent, because just before I met him, about a year after I met him in Delaware, uh, his his wife and and uh, son, I think, were killed in a road accident. And uh, anyway, I met him and uh, met him at that stage, and so that was interesting. And uh, I then stayed there for about uh, eight months, then came back to New Zealand, and uh, and then then Roger Douglas, Roger Douglas did a few things to the country, uh, rightly or wrongly, and uh, he offered uh, early early retirement packages to many people in, in the public service, including um, the uh, Met Service. And so uh, when I was about nine, um, eight, what, uh, six, uh, 50, 58 years old, I took uh, 
took this offer on early retirement. At that stage, I was sort of some number two in the meteorological service, um, along with my friend uh, Don Thompson. He was he, he, with me, and, and then and uh, and John Hickman was the director. And um, but uh, uh, it was it was quite clear that uh, um, John Hickman was not going to be asked to stay on. And and um, but we were offered this this uh, package basically uh, to take take the money and run. Basically, that's what somebody told me take the money and run. So I, because I had um, all these contacts around the world, I basically said uh, said to my wife at that stage, and uh, um, oh, unfortunately died she eight, eight years ago, but while she was alive, um, and I remember going back to the, sitting in the spa pool at the end, and I said to my wife, I said, Don Thompson, my friend, says I should take the money and run. So which is what we did, and uh, um, I got, uh, uh, rep- um, I then wrote round to various people, so I got an offer of a job at um, um, uh, Bureau of Meteorology in Australia um, for two lots of six months. I an offer of a job at the World Meteorological Organization. Well, basically, uh, not WMO, I was there, but I was also being paid basically by the Stockholm Environment Institute, uh, particularly involved with, uh, with climate change and things like that. And uh, also a job for, for two years at the Atmospheric Environment Service in Canada. So I spent uh, four years there post uh, post uh, Roger Douglas and uh, retired at uh, about um, when I was about 63 years old, probably. I then uh, stayed, then came back to Tauranga of, uh, for no particular, particular reason, except that um, uh, my daughter was uh, working in, in Rotorua at that time. We had sold our house in Dunedin. Uh, sorry, not in Dunedin, in, in Wellington, um, four years beforehand. So basically, what we had was just money in the bank and, and no house. And so we had to look for a house. And so it turned out that uh, almost by chance, almost uh, that day, we bought this house in Tauranga, which I, 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 I like, like to, to have, even though I would probably uh, uh, have preferred to go back to, uh, to, to, to Nelson, which is still a nice, nice place, Nelson. Nelson and Tarong were very similar. And so um, that's what happened. And uh, uh, then uh, I tried to do, get some work, um, being a consultant and things like that. And I got a bit of, bit of work and things like that, uh, one with the Port of Tarong, uh, one with the, um, the uh, um, milk company up in, uh, over in uh, um, Kiwi Milk, I think it was called, yeah, over in Harua, and uh, did a few other things like that. Um, but uh, then eventually, the uh, uh, well, I was getting a bit, a bit older in time then. And um, so that was right. But in the meantime, of course, I'd, I'd written about three, I'd done that, the book in 1970, uh, but I'd written another book, um, The Uncertainty Business, the Risks and Opportunities for Weather and Climate, and then uh, another book uh, very similar to that. And then uh, when I was in the working for the Stockholm Environment Institute, they asked me to write a book on um, the, the Dictionary of Global Climate Change, which I did. And uh, then that was the end of the, the, uh, the book writing, except uh, four years ago when just at the beginning of COVID, um, I was uh, Mel- in Melbourne. My daughter was living in Melbourne, at the, sorry, in Adelaide at the time. And um, so um, she, I'd been in town the previous day and it was about 44 degrees. So you could proclaim global warming on my, my next book. And uh, my, my daughter simply said to me, she said, why don't you write another book? 
And I said, well, yeah, okay, I, I could write another book. Um, I had never thought of doing another one. And uh, I, I said, but what, what should I call it? And she said, oh, climate, the truth. Now, even I could, couldn't get, I don't think I could get, get by <laughs> with writing a book, The Climate of the Truth. I could, some of my colleagues would say, that's not the truth, John, it's only half the truth. Uh, but it turns out that, uh, um, uh, because, and again, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the Pope wouldn't get away with writing a book, uh, the, the Catholic Church, The Truth, and Nothing But the Truth type of thing. But anyway, uh, I wrote this book um, and was, I called it 15 Shades of Climate. Now, I, I belong to U3A, University, University of Third Age Groups here, and I mentioned that to the people who I was in there. They said, no, no, you can't use that 15. You can't have, well, I wanted 51 shades of climate. They said, no, no, you can't do that. And I could never I could understand why the problem was. But anyway, I ended up by having, <laughs> having, having a book, uh, The 15 Shades of Climate, uh, which there's nothing magic about 15 except there were 50 chapters in the book. And then uh, just uh, about three months ago, I was in Melbourne, and I quite often will go to a meeting there of my old colleagues from the Bureau of Meteorology in, in Melbourne. And uh, one of them said to me, John, they said, you really need to change the name of that book. It doesn't affect it. And so uh, that's uh, what I did. And uh, I now have the uh, the the, uh, the book. And what's it called now? <laughs> it is uh, the 15 Shades of Climate, The Fall of the Weather Dice, and the Butterfly Effect. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I am amazed, uh, John, you are 92. Both of these books that well, I've seen, be the val- 91, be it the value of weather in the 70s, which I see has been reprinted two years ago. It is still yeah, popular. Uh, yeah, as well, well as 15 Shades of Climate, they are, both of them are over 400 pages. For the last decade, you are also the weather eye at uh, Sunlife in Toronga. Gosh, talk about prolific output. Well, yeah, but the the thing is that I mean, it, it, the, the main thing is see, I mean, it's it's thirty years since I retired from the Met Service, so there's been a lot of time to do things. And when I first came to Taranga, um, they I found out that this this weather eye thing, well, not the weather eye, but these. Sunlight, which was a the uh, computer version of, of uh, they have a week uh, a weekly paper here called the Weekend Sun. Um, mm-hmm. I did write a bit for that, and then then they suggested that uh, I could put it onto their uh, their website, which I find is much more interesting because I can go straight on there. And, uh, I'm a bit embarrassed at times because I just I just write the stuff. Usually send it to them on a Monday morning. I use it like one every week. I've done 500 and 520, 530 of them now. And, Over the last decade, wow. Uh, and uh, so the the, um, the one I, I'm writing up for tomorrow, of course, will be the uh, weather, um, June weather, Tower 1898 to 2023. So it's just straight straightforward there, straightforward thing about that. So, but, uh, so these things carry on and I just, uh, I just like doing it and, it keeps the brain op- being active, I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, look, um, listeners, we've certainly had the entree into Dr. John Maunder's life. Uh, now let's get into the main course. And uh, obviously there's a lot of substance in there that we probably won't do justice to in a few minutes or your half an hour perhaps. But um, way back in your Otago University days, you did a thesis. No, your Victoria University days, you did a thesis, the diurnal variation of rainfall in New Zealand. 
So that means day, the daily rainfall, doesn't it? Diurnal being daily, daily, is that right? Daily rainfall, yeah. Yeah, so that aspect of, of, of your formative part of your career, how, what you wrote then, how true is it today? I mean, is it exactly as you wrote it? Is it, um, has it been tested? Uh, because clearly we know about the daily rainfall and when it rains, we know what's there. We, the weather goes with you, as they say. Well, the, the, the reason why I wrote that was that uh, my, uh, my father was, uh, was uh, born in Hokitea. And uh, well, I used to live in Hokitea for a while but, um, at, at, during my vacation, things like that. And one of the things that I found was that the people on the West Coast say, oh, it, it rains a lot, but most of the rain falls at night. And that's why, why I thought, well, we'll better check this out because not much, nobody had done this before. So I just had to go, go through the, the archives Looking at the the diurnal the the the, the hourly the hourly rainfalls from various places, and I found that in general it did uh, around about sixty uh, percent of the rain in Hokitika actually did fall at night, and I'm talking about twelve hours and twelve hours during the daytime, twelve hours at night, and um, most of that rain, sixty percent of the rain falls at night, and uh, whereas in uh, uh, in in um, Hamilton, it's it's the reverse, and uh, the uh, and and I had to first of all an, analyze that, and I looked at that from all oh, about twelve different places in New Zealand. This this is from my master's the thesis, and of course, and uh, and uh, that that's sort of how it happened. There's no, nothing significant about this about the, the 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 research I did, except that when you do do as you probably know, as you do research, uh, a lot of it is, is the time involved and. The dedication of, of that particular getting involved with that particular subject, something like that. So there's nothing particularly significant about that kind of thing, and uh, I presume that the, that that kind of thing still happens because the, the weather hasn't changed very much in terms of that. Um, um, and uh, so that's that's how it happened. And so, yeah, we we hear a lot about the weather uh, in link, linked into climate change, but just. Just stay on weather for a moment. Why is it hard to predict the weather, um, say, more than 10 days out? Um, it, you know, and, and I know there's plenty of now uh, websites that do give you a, a bit of an idea. They have um, graphic uh, uh, graphics of the um, storms coming and things like that up to, up to two weeks or even a month out. But why is it so hard to make that even stick? Uh, so even 10 days is hard. Oh, the, the the reason for that is this weather is so complicated. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. All you have to do is to look at the uh, uh, what's happened in the last six months, and we've had these um, what the what, what what we call blocking highs, basically just south or southeast of the Channel Island. Now we don't have one today; uh, it's gone. But for 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 a while this year, we've had these blocking highs. Now there's a lot of reasons why them like that. One of one of the my colleagues in Auckland University of Auckland, he was telling me the other day that the basic thing is the sea surface temperatures, and they can be warm or cold or warm and things like that. And you get you get, and then the other thing with those those things, you get what I what what I would call the long waves around the around the hemisphere. And if you if you can imagine yourself sitting in a, in a satellite above the South Pole, looking at the Southern Hemisphere, you'll you'll get a You'll get these what they call these long waves. It's almost like you imagine like, like looking at the snake uh, with a long tail, head and tail, and things like that. 
and it, it'll you know it'll have ups and downs on the snake, and uh, somebody hits the snake on the on his head, it moves, and that's what happened basically in simple terms in the in the atmosphere, and so you have these long waves or the, what what most people would call the jet streams around the hemisphere, and uh, in, in extreme cases in the northern hemisphere, uh, I believe you can get something like only about four of these long waves. So if it's four of these long waves, it, it means that the, the atmosphere is very stable. It won't move. And so that's where you have the blocking situation. In the southern hemisphere, there's probably normally about seven of these long waves around the hemisphere. And so um, you, you'll, you'll get a block every now and again for, partic for no particular reason, except probably sea surface temperatures have a, a fair amount to, to say on this thing. Though. But you'll have this... Um, uh, that thing on the uh, uh, these long waves. So, an area that um, particularly favourable area is the around the Chatham Islands, things like that. And when I was a weather forecaster, you know, right at the beginning there, you know, we were told all about these long waves and blocking highs and things like that. So, whenever I look at the weather map, um, I, I don't look at the I don't look at the, the fronts and things like that. I look at where the high pressure areas are because they dominate the the, 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 the high pressures dominate the weather system and they move they move sometimes very quickly um, normal normal pattern of, you know you get a high pressure area over Melbourne for example three days later it'll be over New Zealand and uh, the next day it's over over the Chatham Islands and away it goes but every now and again it'll stop and so there's a there's a log jam and so basically and that's what we've had for the last uh, um, well up until a week ago um, these a log jam, basically. So everything that, that comes down from the tropics, and of course it's uh, it's the tropical air that, that adds. And don't always have the tropical air, but we, we've had tropical air in the last uh, few few months, and that that result, of course, in uh, in Gisborne, basically being saturated with with uh, with rain. So so going back to your question, it, it, it's complicated out there. Uh, people think that the weather is the weather is very simple. Um, well, we think it's, when I say very simple, it looks fairly simple, but when you look at it, um, it, it is quite complicated. Um, so, uh, and so you've got these models now, and I've got one at the moment that I use from the European Centre for Medium Range Forecasting in, in Bracknell in, in, in England, or in Bracknell area, and uh, you have these um, 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 these 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 forecasts coming out that the are really marvelous forecast they basically they give you every hour or every three hours at one when I looked at every three hours they give you the the for for Tarana, for example you can go into Tarana and you can get the temperature and the wind speed and all the other things that relate to the weather and uh, it, they're actually quite quite good um and I look at them uh, and I then look at the Met service ones and and look at look at those things there, but it's but beyond. Um, I, I see the one that I look at now from from the one of the models from not the Metzers one, but the model and it goes out to about seven days, eight days. I think beyond about seven or eight days, uh, I don't think that there's not much skill in the, beyond that. I mean, the, the model produces the the output, but whether that output is any good is is debatable. Um, right and. John, with that background, whether the output is debatable and the fact that weather is not as straightforward as we would think, I would like to possibly take you back 
1985, the UN-sponsored conference in Villach, Austria, that you attended. And yeah. this 85 conference, it was three years before the United Nations formed the IPCC. And of course, today we have these COP27, COP28 junkets, where the number of attendees you know, are in the tens of thousands. But in 85, when you attended from New Zealand, there were just about a hundred of you. And one of the principal findings of that conference was, and I quote, while other factors such as aerosol concentration, changes in solar energy output and vegetation may also influence climate, greenhouse gases are likely to be the most important cause of climate change over the next century. And today, after this particular statement from the Villa conference, when I go to Neva's page, Neva has presented, has reproduced the six-pager, you know, final output from that conference. And we have all decided that greenhouse gases, and more specifically, human, uh, you know, anthropogenically caused greenhouse gases and warming is what is driving weather, which is what short term for climate, what is your thoughts on this, seeing that you were a part of that conference? When you look back now, what do you think? Well, it's very interesting. that, that What happened at that conference, there were 100 people there. Uh, mm-hmm. We were all there as individuals. We weren't there representing our countries. Right. First thing, there's interview. I was there mainly because I had some expertise on the economic and social aspects of meteorology. Climatology. And there was a small group of, of those tw- of 100 people, about eight about 10 of us, who were basically had some knowledge from the ocean, some of the social, socio-economic side of things. And we were asked, in no uncertain terms, our job, our job was to take the findings of the scientists, that the, what I would call the, the hard scientists, that's the other 100, the, the, the 90 of the 100, and they came up with these things about greenhouse gas and all the rest, and we were asked to put into into language which the which the politicians could understand the findings of the conference, which is what we did. Uh, even though we did, we had several of us had some misgivings about those things like that. And even then, I had some misgivings about the thing that there were. It seemed to me that there were too much emphasis on the what I would call the too much emphasis on the human aspects of 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 the climate. What when I say human causes, I'm talking about. And uh, and um, also the animal causes, the domestic animals, things like that, things like that, and and almost almost very little inf- information on on what I would call the natural causes of climate change. And of course, the the natural causes of climate change have been around for thousands of years. But what you have to do is to go back to so the 1400s, for example. I've just written one of my papers um, out of my book on the, the building of the cathedrals of Europe. In Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, yep. Uh, about 1400. Now, those those cathedrals were built for no particular reason. There's certainly no, no my understanding from my theological friends, uh, that there was no theological reason why they were built at that stage. But they were built for two reasons. One, the, the architects had figured out how to, how to build a cathedral, you know, like Salisbury Cathedral, classic case. Why would you build a thing like a cathedral like that? But because they knew how to do it. So this was a challenge to the to the architect. But what was more important was at that stage it was very warm, relatively very warm in in England, um, not necessarily all around the world, but certainly very warm in there. 
And so there was plenty of food around. And so the people who built the cathedrals, the craftsmen of the uh, of the thing, the the uh, um, that kind of thing, uh, they had plenty of food. And so uh, they lived in lodges. And uh, the, so the masons who who built the cathedrals managed to build all these cathedrals. Now at that stage, of course, uh, there was a, the um, wine was being grown in in, in or harvested in, in England at the mm-hmm. same time. So these things happened in there. So if you go back to, and then of course you go back to the to the around about sixteen hundred something like that, when the the famous Maunder Minimum came along. Now the Maunder Minimum, the same name as my same name name is, but they, as far as I know, I'm not related to the Maunder of the Maunder Minimum. He was an astronomer. He lived from about eighteen fifty to nineteen thirty, and uh, he and his uh, his wife or his second wife actually, uh, they were astronomers. In, in, in Greenwich, and uh, he just, uh, on one, one particular day, or trying to really, he, he, he sort of looked at where the sunspots were and found out, because they'd had pretty rec- good records of sunspots, and found out that on the average, you, you get a sunspot cycle, uh, like takes about 10 years, 11 years, a double sunspot cycle, 22 years, and things like that. And, uh, and But he found out that uh, when, he go, when he looked back through the records, uh, around about 1600, something like that, uh, for about 50 years, there were there were no sunspots, almost no sunspots. And this, this was known, at, not, that, not at that time, but sub, subsequent to that, one of the, his fellow astronomers, and I think it was about 1970 and 1980, uh, he caught, turned, turned the, 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 the name the, the Maunder Minimum. So this is known as the Maunder Minimum when there were almost no, no sunspots. And at that time, it was associated, although not directly associated, but at that time uh, they, they had frost fairs, what they called frost fairs on the Thames. Um, it was extremely cold in Europe. And so people con- concerned about uh, um, um, the global warming being bad. Uh, well, the, the, the worst thing, of course, can happen if you get not global warming, global cooling. But John, all of that, when you're talking about, we are going back that far long. The IPCC seems to think 150, 200 years of the man's hockey stick is enough. They don't well, seem to think we need to look at a longer horizon like you are. Well, I think so. Well, well the point the point is that that if you go back to uh, my recent book, I, I made, that, made the comment, the fact that if you go back to 1800, and that's 1800 plus or minus 50 years, there was, there was, there was very little... What I would call man-made pollution. I mean, there was there was pollution from farms and things like that, but uh, that the industrial revolution uh, re- revolution really hadn't taken place at that stage. And so, um, uh, but we still had warm periods and we still had cold periods. And you, you just have to go back through the the Viking expeditions and all that, and then go back to the to the you know we're talking about a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, the, the weather. Really hasn't changed from that point. The climate hasn't really changed. It goes, it goes up and down, and and all that is due to natural causes. And uh, so that's that's the thing that I get a little bit concerned about the fact that there's a so much emphasis on on the uh, greenhouse gases, and particularly in Australia, we've got over in Australia. I watch Sky TV quite a bit, and there's a there's a Minister of Energy over there, and he uh, he um, he's Completely convinced, really completely convinced that we um, we have to get rid of all all kind of uh, pollution, get rid of all the coal and the oil and 
all that type of thing. And we can have to produce all our energy by the, the wind and, and the uh, wind and solar. Well, that's okay. But uh, the, the problem with that kind of thing is that the, these solar um, um, collectors and the, the wind generators, they, they only last about uh, 15, 20 years. What are we going to do with them all when they when they when they when they they they, they, uh, they get beyond their uh, um, use by date? Uh, we're going to bury them. What are we going to do? We've got real problems there, and uh, I think you have to be a little bit careful. The fact that you don't uh, don't basically throw out the uh, all, all the uh, the coal coal and oil and all that type of thing because uh, it's uh, it's not as simple as it looks. Put it that way. Uh- it's intriguing, John, you the tension about whether it's global warming or, or, or whether cooling would be good for the world, because that's what the by inference, it's sort of they're inferring that cooling could be good for the world. Well, as, as you've highlighted through this interview, that uh, the warming of the middle um, medieval warm period wasn't a bad spot on time to live. And in fact, the little ice age uh, periods would be very unpleasant. So it was intriguing to me that when I was doing this sort of, and I don't want to make this about me, but I remember giving a speech in Wellington to the, I think it was the Anglican Diocese of the Wellington University, Victoria. And I used the word climate variation 17 times in my speech. And a certain well-known professor was adjudicating that night and he tried to destroy me by using that word climate ver- those two words climate variation instead of the words climate change that he was so hell-bent on needing to be used and so how have we got academia so poisoned that they hide behind or want to use the legislative privilege of certain words you know because I've, I've said on the show before that we're not talking about um real climate change and in many ways we're talking about legislated climate change it's it's got to be within the um lower than two percent uh, two degrees by 100 and all that sort of stuff how have we poisoned academia uh to come to these conclusions that are so vital they've got to they almost want a solution before they got um any sort of reason to have that solution yeah, well, I don't, I don't know the answer to this really because, um, as I as I've said several times, um, not in this interview but other time, um, of the climate people in the world like myself, um, I would say I'm about I'm on on about ten percent of ten percent of climate people around the world think that I like like I do, and the other ninety percent don't. But most of those ninety percent are working in in a in a government organisation or a university or something like that, and I dare say that um, um, I'm not suggesting that they they get paid because they they think a certain way, but that there's much more of that kind of thing. And so the, the people that I know who who have a my viewpoint, uh, they're mainly people who have retired, and so they have no axe to go grind, and they, they say what they like and things like that. But my 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 point is is not so much that kind of thing, but just the, just the fact that all we have to do is to look at the world. And you look at the world, you just go back to the year 1000, for example, and so we, to, to today, um, and we, we, we've got these periods and periods of warmth and exploration and all that type of thing. And the world was quite different in those days, the, the climate world. Uh, but why the fixation of the 
greenhouse gases, I, I really don't understand because I would have thought that in many cases it would be easier. It would be easier if the if the green parties of the world and and the governments over in Australia and things like that uh, allow a little bit of, of oil and a little bit of of, of uh, coal to be produced, things like that. But when that and 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 the, the the nuclear one, the nuclear one is a very interesting one because even even you've got the, the my understanding is the green the green party of Finland are now supporting nuclear power because they realise that there are that there are other things out there that we we have to look at. And so, fortunately, from New Zealand's point of view, because we've got plenty of energy, uh, norm, normal energy, uh, we don't have to worry about uh, uh, nuclear power. Uh, I remember um, my former boss, John John Delia, he used to be the director of the Met Service many years, 40 years ago. Um, when he retired, he became uh, uh, involved with a, had a, a Royal Commission on Nuclear Power in New Zealand. This is 40 years ago, I think it was. And... And they, they found out that at that stage, there was no particular reason why New Zealand should go nuclear at all. That's for nuclear energy. N nuclear submarines is a different thing, uh, but uh, nuclear energy. But in certain other part, parts of the world, and all you have to do is to look at the literature and you, you find that, uh, I'm not quite sure what percentage is, but a large percentage of the, uh, of the energy in, in, in France, for example, it comes from nuclear power. So it's not as though, Whereas you you try and bring in nuclear power into, into even thought about nuclear power into Australia, it's sort of a, a, a no no event. You can't talk about, not even talk about it. But one of these days, well, they'll, they'll they'll figure out that they've got it wrong. Well, I think uh, in a New Zealand sense, John, um, there's talk about pumped hydro into Lake yeah. Onslow near yeah. Roxburgh, and that the, the number at the moment I think is 15 billion. Um, I stand to be corrected. Uh, I'm told a modular um, nuclear um, uh, power plant could be four billion, and you'd put it uh, somewhere where the need is most. You wouldn't have to transmit the power and have all those line losses from south to north. So, we do have to have that discussion as a country. Uh, where we seem we seem um, to try and squash it all the time, but I think the time is coming. Yeah, I think you're right, and, I, and I'm not a not an expert on that kind of thing at no. all. But I understand that you these days you can. You almost can go down to the mitre 10 and buy a little nuclear power thing. <laughs> Perhaps uh, not quite. A miniature one, you know. But yeah. it'll come, that kind of thing. So you'll have not, not one nuclear power cut in New Zealand, but you might have several of them, little ones. Mm. Yeah. John, before we go, I wonder if I could ask you to comment on, you know, what's been your career, meteorology and forecasting and all of that. These days, we can't seem to watch TV for more than five minutes without some sort of hysteria being whipped up by weather presenters and so on. What is your take on what you see? That's if you can be able to look at what is what passes as news today. Uh, start again. Start the other question, sorry. My, my question here, John, was what is your take on the state of, uh, say, weather reporting today in the news? What do you think? Oh, oh the weather reporting. Well, if you take the weather, weather reporting if you if you take the standard weather forecasts on TV mm -hmm. one and TV three, they're, they're pretty good. Uh, mm -hmm. I prepare despite the uh, connection with the the Met Service and and TV one and things like that. Um, um, I think that the the presentation there is I find it a little bit complicated. I have to look at it every, every now and again. It's very good. Um, mm -hmm. and whereas whereas I think the TV three one is is much 
is much easier to understand for most people. I, I think probably from that point of view. But the, the the comments on the weather outside the weather forecast, that's the, the standard weather forecast, the ones we see at two minutes to seven on on TV one and TV three. Um, I find that the uh, it, it's 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 almost dominated by by the greenhouse gases and things like that, which is a pity. Um, we we don't get much and. Uh, a good example is probably uh, uh, my, my book. By, I'm not suggesting that that uh, it's it's the it's the fashion of the day, but uh, um, I, I sent it to uh, a group the other day, and without I won't mention the group, but uh, and uh, but they they have reviewed another book on climate change. Um, that uh, and my my comment was that I didn't think it was probably their scene to 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 look at my book. Uh, in other words, they they have a fixed interest on. On greenhouse gases, um, and uh, it's it, it, to me, it's a pity that uh, they spend a lot of time on that kind of thing. Because if you, you just have to look at the weather, the the normal presentation of the news, I'm pretty sure that if you watch the news on any particular day, the word climate change is mentioned almost every time. Every time there's a news bulletin, I mean, it, uh, you know, we, we've got some, we've got a lot of problems in the world, and I don't think that. Climate is the, is the number one. That's 100% correct. Uh, I listen to Radio New Zealand a lot uh, for my daily dose of insanity. And uh, it's used in just about every presenter's story. They link it back to climate change. And it, it gets me aggravated as early as six o'clock in the morning. Um, it's just incessant. Hey, um, one last question. Um, the competitive tension between NEWA and MET service, is that something that bothers you or it's a good thing? Ah, yes, yes, it does to an extent. And I mean, I was in the MET service when the when the breakup took place after 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 I retired. Um I personally would I think we, we would have been better off if we'd stayed with the MET service and uh, with the research and things like that. Um or or in one. Uh, Niwaras are quite different because uh, my understanding is that when the when the breakup took place in 1992, 92, I think it was. Um, anyway, the the breakup was that the Niwa could 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 only use the Met Service data after after twenty four hours. In other words, they were that that prevented them from making the weather forecasts and the normal weather forecast. What they were allowed to do was to make climate forecasts, and I have no problem with that kind of thing. And uh, but um, what the, the real problem was is that with this kind of thing is that um, fortunately the, the Met Service have have the have the uh, the uh, ability and the, or the, the obligation to make storm forecasts. That's the that's the, the principal reason why you have a Met Service storm forecast, big the, the storms and things like that. And if you you do that kind of thing, that's probably no problem because we only have one place in New Zealand that makes my understanding only one place in New Zealand makes earthquake forecasts and uh, tsunamis and all that type of thing. You can't have two organisations doing that kind of thing. And almost all countries in the world, you only have one meteorological service. There are plenty of people who, who provide forecasts, but they they are what I would call cosmetic types forecast. Interesting information for the the uh, supermarkets or retail trade or anything like that, but the 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 real forecast, the storm forecast, things like that, really have to come from the same place. And now at the moment, we're, we're getting sometimes a bit of confusion. Uh, both both the Met Service and NIWA 
um, making forecasts of storms and things like that. Um, fortunately, uh, I think that even even Niwa uh, realised that uh, they they are only the they are only the second the second block second boat boat out in terms of weather forecast in terms of storm forecast because because you really have to if you could just imagine the United States for example a hurricane coming into the to the south of uh, uh, the United States into Florida uh, the national weather forecast makes the storm makes the forecast uh, not 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 some other place. Even though the other place may well be able to do it, uh, but you can only have one one lot. So, in many ways, it's probably it's a, it's a pity that we we've, we've got both, but we've got them both. And Niwa is doing a pretty good job in terms of seasonal forecasts and things like that, um, uh, which the Met Service doesn't do, which is which is fair enough. Right. So, look, um, drawing this uh, uh, interview to a conclusion, um, you know, you'd say that. Uh, the chaos theory is alive and well in weather and climate, and yep, yep. and uh, and you know for as many papers that are written about uh, how we must reduce our greenhouse gases um, and that, that man is being awful to the world, um, it seems to me that uh, the weather gods are going to have the last say all the time. Uh, but that's perhaps just me being simple. Do you uh, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I think you're right. The uh, um, I think we have to realise that uh, uh, something's running the running the show the show out there, uh, and it's not us. Right, and I could glibly say so. Taxing animals uh, to change the weather is not a smart ob- objective, is it? I think I think you're right there. <laughs> hey, so John, um, yeah, drawing this to conclusion and letting you get off to lunch. Uh, uh, fantastic having you on. Um, we really are in your debt. Look, uh, 80 plus years in the business, effectively. In fact, your whole life in the business. Um, it's great to have your experience, your institutional knowledge. And, uh, you know, um, we're grateful for you giving us your time this morning. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 